You are listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. Altogether, we are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting Listener-Supported Community Radio. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. It is said that the more things change, the more they stay the same. The tribalism that was seen in the contested election of 1800 is still with us, albeit in a slightly different form, and of course with different players. Our guest today has written a book that helps explain it all. He is James A. Marone, the John Hazen White Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at Brown University. And his very informative book is Republic of Wrath, How American Politics Turned Tribal from George Washington to Donald Trump. I am very happy to welcome Jim Marone to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Jim. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And how are you? I'm doing great, too. Thanks for having me on. Oh, well, thank you for being here. Uh, you have a number of provocative ideas in your writing, and I'd like to read one thing that I think is most provocative that we could then start to get into everything with. During the first presidential campaign, when two parties each fielded a single candidate in 1800, seven out of the 16 states changed or debated changing the election rules. As parties developed, they grew more brazen about rigging the process. To this day, there is no neutral arbiter to oversee elections, carve the districts, decide who qualifies to vote, determine registration procedures, specify how votes are cast, count the ballots, or adjudicate the disputed returns. There are few rules and almost no guidelines, just political muscle in the states and towns. Rigging the rules is simplified because, astonishingly, there is no right to vote in the United States. It is up to the states. So my question is, really? Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I went with a simple question and went into uh, researching this book, which was um, things seem so angry and tribal and partisan now. Let's see what's really different and what's the same over time. And to my shock, I noticed right from the election of 1800, they were all fiddling around with the rules. And, um, and that just kept happening. I went election after election, and I, and I looked, and I just thought, there is this constant battle over who gets to vote, how they vote, under what conditions they vote. And that, uh, that comment, there is no right to vote, uh, that is actually a direct quote taken from Bush v. Gore. It's a Supreme Court decision in which the majority said there is no right to vote for the electors uh, for president of the United States. It depends on how the state sets it up. The dirty, rotten secret is that the founders, with all the things they thought of, just didn't pay very much attention to who was going to vote. And so they just kicked it to the states. They said time, place, and manner up to the states. And again and again, 
the states have played politics uh, with the with the electoral process. It is something that astonished me as I went from election to election to see how the political football uh, had a political football about the rules before we actually got to the vote year after year after year. So of all the reforms that leapt out from my thinking about how to change the political system, that's the one that really just leapt right out at me. And I thought, well, you know, we probably need to fix this. Well, if that is true, then who gets to vote for president? Well, that was uh, something that we sort of got lulled into um, a kind of complacency because there had been, outside of 2000, no particularly intense contested election after the election results. But now, after the 2020 election, we realize just how many twists and turns there were in the process about who gets to vote. There was a lot of fear beforehand that some of the state legislatures might simply say, well, I know you people in Michigan voted, but we're going to seize the power away and name our own uh, electors. And that might have violated state law, but as the Supreme Court has made clear, it would not violate federal law. So uh, again and again, we have this same problem. Let me give you one other example, Bob. Um, you might say, well, how about for the Senate? We, of course, passed an, uh, an amendment that said, hey, uh, the people vote directly for the senators of the United States. Um, and um, that would appear to be true until you actually go and look at the 17th Amendment itself. Now, in popular lore, the 17th Amendment says, hey, we'll no longer have the state legislatures selecting U.S. senators. We'll have the people voting for U.S. senators. But if you're a wonk, a legal wonk, and you look at the fine print, what it says is the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for elections of the most numerous branch of the state legislatures. That is, if the state says you can vote for the legislature, then you can vote for the senator, meaning that at the time, if you were African-American in the South, you were not going to qualify. If you were a woman in the Northeast, you were not going to qualify. Again, it was up to the states. Yes, in Colorado for women. No, in New York for women at the time this was passed in 1913. So once again, shockingly, below the placid surface of American politics, here's this thing that's just up for grabs. Well, what would put this in plain terms? Uh, A constitutional amendment? Would H.R. 1, the House-passed bill just recently that's now going to go to the Senate, uh, would that make a difference? Yes, I think so. I think you could do it legislatively, because it's very clear that uh, on elections for federal offices, at least, national rules take precedence over state rules. So, yes, you could do that. And that is something I think in the long run both parties would really profit from. Uh, I, In fact, I think two things. First, everybody should vote. When you turn 18, you should have the right to vote, and it should be simple. Um, 
And secondly, I'd even like to go further, Bob. I would like to require people to vote. Let's be like Australia and say you are expected to vote. I mean, it's not like I throw people in jail for not voting, but you violate the good of the common wheel a lot more, in my opinion, if you uh, don't vote than if you say park in a place where you're not supposed to park. So I would make voting much, much simpler, and I would start a debate about requiring voting. You know, we have all this rigmarole that comes from efforts by elites, by one party or the other, to stop people from voting. Where does registration come from? It comes from the 1830s, when the Whigs were really upset about all the Irish and all the German uh, immigrants who were coming to the United States, and they thought, you know, they're going to—they're all voting Democratic. The Whigs, who were the forerunner of the Republicans, said, "Let's put registration into place." And as one of them put it, "We will be safe for all time." That registration was a way to dampen votes of people that the conservatives at the time didn't like. To require people to vote, would we not have a similar situation as requiring people to wear masks today? Uh, requiring people to wear masks or requiring people to have insurance when they drive cars. There's two different requirements, one of which um, creates great havoc and one of which doesn't. Why is the mass so contentious? I believe it's because of leadership. Uh, now, some of your uh, listeners who hate masks might differ from me on this, but I have often imagined that if President Trump had made mask wearing a sign of patriotism, and if he had looked out there on television and said, we're fighting this war, um, if you see someone without a mask, you walk right up to him and you tell him, put a mask on. I just wonder how that would have changed the whole debate about mask wearing. But when he expressed skepticism, it seems to me that opened the door for a kind of strong feeling uh, against mask wearing. But it does, your question really raises a, a, a big issue for tribal America, and that is, can we find common ground? Can we find some universal uh, agreements uh, that will make us a whole nation again, even a nation that agrees to disagree? Because year by year, for reasons I describe in the book, we are coming to be a nation that just doesn't agree, and that just can't agree on the most basic stuff. So that, I think, is a, is a huge problem right, right across the board for us. It's something we really have to think about addressing. Well, one of the interesting things you point out in the book is that uh, political change doesn't come quickly. Something that's suggested today is not going to happen tomorrow. It takes sometimes decades before it's fully implemented. So I think that right now, I don't see bipartisanship as being a simple solution to anything. It may occur over the next uh, few years or a couple of decades. But um, this is a great book, packed full of facts and interesting pieces of information that as much as I speak to many guests, read many books, I had no idea. You enlightened me in many respects, and I'm hoping that we can enlighten our listeners 
So I would like to go back to some of the early parts of the book and then move forward. And if we digress at different times, that's fine. So uh, the founding fathers were very fearful of political parties. James Madison, the most sophisticated political thinker of them all, identified political factions as the moral disease under which popular governments have everywhere perished. And I love Jefferson, uh, who always had the best quote uh, at the end of that paragraph, said, if I could not go to heaven but with a party, I would not go there at all. I'd rather burn in hell than uh, join a political party. Strong words from the guy who started the Democratic Party uh, to oppose George Washington's policies. The founders, as uh, you can look them up on almost everything, but not on parties. They hated the idea. And yet, what, it, what turned out was within six years of the accepting of the Constitution, by George Washington's second term, we were deep into parties. And here's something most people don't, you know, most people kind of agree with the founders. They don't really like partisanship. But the dirty, rotten secret is we need them. We need to have debates about the things we disagree on. And I'm talking about, oh, let's mandate voting and all that stuff. But at bottom, the reason I want to make sure everybody votes is because we have a lot of disagreements, and we always have. And politics is how we answer those disagreements, the way we fight this stuff out. So once we agree on the rules, then let the parties have at it. That was one thing that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison got wrong, that the, we need parties. And they, they knew within a few years that they were going to have to have parties. And sure enough, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton got busy organizing parties. Now, they thought they were sinning. They thought this was a terrible thing to do. But they, were, they thought the questions before the young republic were so important that you had to have uh, like-minded people fighting against the people who were obviously wrong. And so parties developed against their will. They became big and they became strong. America, the United States, really uh, were the, the, the people who thought through, who introduced mass political parties to, uh, to the world. And within 30 years, by, by the election of the 1830s and 1840s, parties were amazing mass organizations with great parades and, and all kinds of hoopla. The Americans really took party politics very seriously uh, in that golden age of parties. And we've been having parties ever since. So, problem. Founders hated it. And so they didn't give us any rules. But the American genius for a, finding a solution to the problem at hand created parties. And we've had parties ever since. I think and boy, we've had great battles, great party battles over time. I think there's a logical underlying reason for all this to occur. As you point out, uh, Jim, in 1800, out of a population of only 5.3 million people, only 62,000 men voted. Today, we have over 350 million people, and in the last election, 152 million voted. You have to have parties to help 
uh, get everything together. You can't just do it from one little place. Uh, who was it that uh, uh, campaigned uh, in Ohio from his back porch? Yes, uh, yes, uh, Mc, uh, McKinley did that, running against a, a, a great uh, commoner, Williams Jennings Bryan. Uh, Bryan was one of the first candidates to, uh, to go around the country and campaign for himself. Before that, it was thought to be indecent to actually campaign for yourself. And McKinley, they said, my God, Brian is going everywhere. He, he, went, uh, he went before uh, a crowd in New Haven, and people thought, well, New Haven, there's no chance that the Democrats are going to take Connecticut. What's he doing in New Haven? And the Yale men all went and heckled him. And he said, well, I don't speak to the current Yale men, but when you have lost your ill-gotten gains that you've uh, inherited from your father, I'll speak to your sons and they'll listen to me. Um, so there's Brian going around the country. McKinley very calmly spoke from his back porch in Canton, Ohio, and the Republican committee would just bring in thousands of voters who would stand politely and listen to McKinley. Uh, they raised a lot of money. His campaign manager would go to business leaders and say, how much will it cost you if that populist wins? And they'd say, oh, my gosh, it'll cost us a ton of money. And they said, all right, write a check. So it was the McKinley campaign that invented campaign finance. They, uh, they had the business people writing checks, and lo and behold, McKinley won. And, uh, and restored uh, business uh, against the great populace, the great commoner, who, uh, who never was elected despite his great popularity in, in the rural districts of the country. But uh, it is said that the 1896 great commoner eventually won his election when uh, Franklin Roosevelt took many of, uh, of his ideas in 1932 and put them into, into place. You are listening to Politics, a Love Story. Our guest today is James A. Marone, uh, who is the author of his newest book, Republic of Wrath, How American Politics Turned Tribal from George Washington to Donald Trump. We're jumping back and forth uh, in history, but I wanted to point out that today, or, or if not today, then last week or next week, Congress is going to be holding hearings about content providers for TV stations airing misinformation purposefully. Yet after the Sedition Act of 1789, newspapers supporting either the Federalists or the Democratic Republicans with what we would call today fake news could be put in jail. Yes, that's, uh, that is one of the great uh, chilling moments. The uh, Adams administration uh, uh, put into place sedition acts, and, uh, and it wasn't just fake news, actually. If you criticized the administration, um, you, you could be prosecuted. It was part of alien and sedition acts. They would, uh, again, the, the conservative party didn't like immigrants, and so you could uh, you could ship aliens out of the country uh, if they spoke out against the government, or uh, if newspapers spoke out against the government. Why you could uh, you could arrest the uh, the editors, and many uh, editors got arrested. It was a terrible strategy. It just completely backfired um, on the 
uh, on the Adams administration, and Jefferson for, uh, forgave all the pardoned all the uh, newspaper editors that had been put in jail. Uh, there were actually quite a few, some uh, 15 newspaper editors who ended up in jail. But you raise a good point. If you read the 19th century newspapers speaking about fake news, they the Democratic newspapers and the Republican newspapers were completely different. You read the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates, for example, and in the Republican newspapers, Lincoln smoked Douglas a mighty blow in their great debate, the 1850 debates when they were both running for Senate. Um, he, and and you, you imagine Douglas was practically on the floor, and the crowd was cheering for Abraham Lincoln. Then you look at the Democratic newspapers, and Douglas had had uh, Lincoln almost in tears as his supporters, Douglas's supporters, carried him off on his shoulders. It was almost different stories. And that kind of fake news got even uglier after the Civil War, when there were actually truly horrible uh, race riots, the racial violence, the unabashed terrorism. Uh, after the Civil War throughout the South, really running from 1866 to roughly the 1890s, horrible, awful slaughters. Um, over 800 people murdered in Louisiana in 1866 alone. African-American people murdered in Louisiana in 1866 alone. And yet, the Republican newspapers all reported them with all the horrors. And the Democratic newspapers, back then, the Democratic Party was the party of the South and of white supremacy, they dismissed them as exaggerations, or they blamed the murdered African Americans as people who had basically caused trouble or stealing or this or that. And then we had true fake news. Grant, President Grant, uh, in the middle of this, lamented how we can't in this Christian nation even get truthful accounts of these slaughters. So as you look back across time for what's different about today, people always say, oh, well, the media is so, you know, everybody has their own media. Well, no, that's not different. That's what the 19th century was like. Uh, so fake news is a very old story. We've been fighting against it or endorsing it, uh, depending on where you stand on the spectrum, uh, ever since uh, before the, uh, the, the turn of the 1800s back in the 1790s. So that is an old story that only ended really in the, in the uh, mid-20th century when we aimed for more objective news reporting. So uh, just getting back to the Alien and Sedition Acts of uh, 1789, is it true that those acts... Uh, that John Adams signed into law were in part responsible for him being a one-term president. Yes, that was uh, that was one of the things. The politics were very fluid. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was uh, and his Democratic Republicans were, and later they became the Democratic Party, were rising up, and the Alien and Sedition Act made a big difference. Um, but there's something else that made a difference. When the, uh, when the Federalists, the, think of them as forerunners to the recurrent, to the Republican Party, the Federalists, when they lost, they didn't blame the Alien and Sedition Acts. They blamed something else. They said, you know what? We have a three-fifths rule in our Constitution that the slave states get to count 
vote. And so we add that all together. And they said, you know, the southern states all went to Jefferson, and they all had an enhanced electoral college vote because they got three-fifths of a vote for every slave and one vote for every free uh, person. And that additional vote, the three-fifths of all the slaves, gave them something like an extra 11, 12, 13 electoral college votes. And at the time, that's what uh, Jefferson won by. So if you were a Democratic Republican, you would say people were furious at the Adams administration for signing the Alien Act, signing the Sedition Act. They were un-American. They violated the First Amendment. People hated it. And you'd be right. If, on the other hand, you were a supporter of the Federalist, you would say that Jefferson was carried into the Temple of Liberty on the shoulder of slaves. And many historians today, going back and looking at the numbers, would also agree that that was also part of that election. Notice, Bob, how far back this great debate over race goes in American politics, that we're fighting about it even then. We have had, for all these years, uh, majorities have often been the minorities when it comes to uh, voting, either because of the Electoral College or because of other things. But as a for instance, I was reading just the other day that we have a 50-50 tie in the Senate, and yet the Democrats' 50 senators represent 41 million more Americans than do the 50 Republicans. Yes, that's a striking figure. Um, the Republicans have won one presidential election popular vote. Uh, uh, they've won one just 2004. Since uh, Dukakis was running against George Herbert Walker Bush in 88, what this reflects is something else that's new in American politics. Traditionally, each party had an urban uh, constituency and a rural constituency. It cut across. So if you look at the, say, at the Democrats back in the Roosevelt era, well, farmers were part of their constituency, but so was labor in the big cities. And so the bias towards rural voters built into the Constitution never amounted to a bias for one party over the other. Um, it did amount to a bias for the South over the North before the Civil War because of the three-fifths rule. But we abolished that, and after that, since 1865, both parties had urban-rural constituencies, so we didn't really think about the Constitution being fundamentally biased towards one party and not the other. But that increasingly became the case in the last three decades. One party is the party of the cities, the urban party, and one party is the party of the countryside, the rural party, the Republicans. And we've only recently discovered, really since 2000, that the Constitution is deeply biased in favor of a rural party. So it really has to do with how the parties have realigned themselves most recently that makes us so much a minority government. And it's something to worry about. We have not had uh, election after election where a minority would win the election. Oh, it's true that the election of 1824 elected uh, a minority president, John Adams. 
And again, Benjamin Harrison squeaked in over Grover Cleveland. But people considered those very anomalous, just one-term uh, sort of freaks uh, of the process. To have it happen again twice in the last 20 years, uh, first with, with uh, George W. Bush and then again with Donald Trump, is really unusual. That is not something that's happened a lot in American politics. And in the past, there was a lot of blowback about that. And Jackson immediately won the next election. And uh, Grover Cleveland, having lost in, uh, to, to, to Harrison, then he was reelected uh, for two non-consecutive terms. Uh, so in each of those cases, there were real anomalies. Now it's been organized right into our system because the two parties One's urban, one's rural. So um, I guess, although it's not in your five proposals, one uh, way to even things up a bit would get to be get rid of the Electoral College. But Yes, yes. I think we have to worry about minority rule. Um, and I think that goes back to my point that at a minimum, uh, you have to get lots of people voting. And I do worry about the bias in the Electoral College. I would go back to the system that was largely in place before the election of 1800. And that was each party split up its electoral college vote by the percentage of people who voted for one or the other candidate. If um, Donald Trump got a, a third of the vote in New York or California, he should get a third of the electors. That's how it was originally designed by most states. Thomas Jefferson had changed that. He used to say that, of course, that's much closer to the people if we actually reflect what the people chose. And then he looked at his own uh, state, Virginia, and he realized, wait, John Adams is going to win one of the Electoral College votes in Virginia. That might be enough to put him over the top. And he wrote to future President um, Monroe, James Monroe, who was governor at the time, and he said, let's change that. And so sure enough, they changed it. But I think, I think it's, you really have to worry about the long-term consequences of winning, of having one party always win the popular vote and yet often lose the um, – lose the Electoral College vote. My Republican friends, and of course our Republican listeners, if they're still listening, you'll will, will start screaming uh, that, that, uh, that I'm a fool and that I hate Republicans. But let me, let me make a pitch, particularly to the young Republicans, like my young Republican students. The Republicans face a huge fork in the road, I think. Um, and that is, um, they were once we will have to come back to this in a moment, but they were once the party of African Americans. They were once the party of Asian Americans. They once had a very large Latinx vote um, in their party, and they now face a decision about whether to try to win back those voters. What this last election showed is a very high turnout, against all odds, did not hurt the Republican Party. Indeed, constituencies that thought were thought to be solidly in the Democratic camp uh, saved Republican candidates in and the Republican state uh, legis uh, state control in both Florida and Texas, uh, where Latinx voters came in both for Donald Trump and for Republicans uh, very uh, in very strong numbers. So. And my way of thinking, Republicans, rather than fight against 
a wide open voting would do well to support it. Let lots of people vote, and that will force the party to win back constituencies it once had and break off the wing of the party that is more comfortable with white voters than with other kinds of voters, that is really fearful of immigrant voters. I know so many college students I talk to who are Republican or conservative want to go back to that kind of Republican Party, and I think you would give them the incentives and the institutions if lots and lots of people were voting. Republicans would be forced again to be the kind of big tent party they had been for a while, uh, rather than the kind of party that they've become under President Trump. And uh, as I say, it's this election showed that it could very definitely happen. But it has to be a big tent party with lots of people voting. Well, I posit that what we need are two strong parties that compete for the voters. Competition, and I had been a businessman for most of my life, uh, I found that competition forced me to think and be more innovative, and I think that's the same in politics. And right now, you have... Uh, the gerrymandered districts where the uh, Republican campaigner doesn't have to go and speak to his constituency. But if we had two strong parties and they had a vie for the votes, both Democrats and Republicans, I think we would have more ideas coming up and coming out of the Republicans. Right now, there are very few good ideas other than to cut taxes. Um, I want to... Uh, to get- Let me just strongly agree with that. Okay. All your listeners out there who say, why can't they put aside their differences and just get along? It's, it's like telling two companies to get along. No, they should compete, just as you say, and our politics are stronger. But we shouldn't let the parties pick the voters. It's the voters who should pick the parties. And whether it's gerrymander or the Electoral College or all kinds of things, we're letting the parties pick the voters. But I interrupted your next question, Bob. That's so, okay. Uh, so let's get to that. Uh, in the presidential election of 1840, Martin Van Buren and his Democrats ran for re-election against William Henry Harrison and the Whigs. It was the first modern political campaign between two well-organized parties, and it embodied many of the features that we associate with party politics today. Nasty, media-driven, full of mummery, I want to get back to that word, <laughs> as, the, as the skeptics grumped, a kaleidoscope of torchlight processes processions, rousing songs, awful doggerel, and histrionic rallies. Every, every side repeated slogans that were not exactly true, and voter turnout soared to nearly 80%, the third highest in U.S. history. For sheer exuberance, perhaps no compa- campaign has ever topped 1840. Is that correct? Yeah, and uh, William Perry Harrison supporters had this huge 10-foot leather ball covered with stickers, and they would roll it from town to town. Harrison will win. Van Van is a used-up man. Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. And people would gather in the town along the streets, and they'd scream, keep the ball rolling. And that's where that famous statement comes from, keep the ball rolling. That was a great campaign. (laughs) Yes, I guess it was. And and, uh, it is said, although this is disputed, but... uh, the, his opponent, uh, Martin Van Buren, we were in the middle of a terrible depression, so Van Buren was in trouble. Um, but uh, he used to be known as Old Kinderhook, and he would sign memos, 
said that the uh, keep the ball rolling was uh, was answered by the Democrats with chance of okay okay, and that's how that uh, expression became popular in in the United States. So keep the ball rolling and okay, those both come from the campaign of 1840. Uh, in 1837, just we're jumping around, obviously, and your book sort of does that because there are themes you want to follow through, and it goes beyond the next point. But in 1837, John Calhoun, a Democratic senator from South Carolina, rose on the Senate floor and declared that slavery was a positive good. Slavery, insisted Calhoun, was nothing less than a providential blessing for the slaves. Southern writers and statesmen would embellish this paternalistic nonsense. Slavery, slavery as a positive good for the slaves as well as the masters for the next two decades. Right up to the Civil War, yes. Uh, slavery's apologists had been uh, sheepish about slavery, and Calhoun was the one who really popularize an alternative view, which is let's stop apologizing and stand up and declare uh, slavery a positive good. But that gets, Bob, to the central theme. You talked about a theme running through the book. And there's one, and it's the most important answer to the question, what's new and what's not new? What's new about our current tribal politics? It's a theme that most surprised me, and I think in some ways is the most important thing I found. It surprised me more than almost anything else. And that's this. If you look at American history, the two most explosive issues, and we've talked about both of them again and again from 1800 right till today, are race, Start first slavery, then Jim Crow, then violence, etc., and nativism, the fear of immigrants as they come, uh, come to the American shores, that it's always been the most intense issues. Gender and sexuality is third, because if you try to keep populations apart, you try to stop marriage between blacks and whites, for example, or try to keep immigrants separate, you have to put strong controls on your women. So all three of those issues, race, immigration or nativism, and gender and sexuality, have been the strongest culture war themes in American history. Now, here's the key thing that I found. The parties always split those issues up. Go back, as we have several times, to the election of 1800. In the election of 1800, John Adams was terrible. He wanted to just ship the immigrants who caused trouble right back to where they came from. And the truth of the matter is, the Federalists hated immigrants. And after that, the Whigs hated immigrants. Why? Because they were all voting for the Democrats. And after that, the Republicans were not uh, sympathetic to immigrants um, because they were voting Democrat. But if you look at race, it was the conservative party that was much more advanced, much more generous, much more enlightened by the standards of the day. So go back to that 1800. The John Adams administration made a treaty, a very favorable treaty, to trade with the slave rebels of Haiti, who were then called Saint Domingue, who had just rebelled and fought off their slave masters, killed in a terrible, bloody war, um, 
And the Adams administration actually made a deal with them. Indeed, sent three warships there to help out and actually bombed uh, one of the cities to help out to uh, Toussaint Louverture, who was the head of the uh, slave rebels uh, against, uh, against a rival. The people in the South were horrified that the Adams administration was having truck with a slave rebellion, because after all, that would encourage, they thought, their slave owners, their slaves, to rebel. So notice what I'm saying. The conservative party embraced African Americans and Africans abroad and hated immigrants. The the Democratic Republicans, later the Democratic Party, were the party of slavery. Remember, Jefferson came into the uh, Temple of Liberty on the shoulder of slaves, but they were very open to immigrants. And indeed, they, they were signing up immigrants to vote before they'd even recovered from the sea voyage. So each party reached out to a different group on the, on the fringes of political power. So for year after year, the two parties, they split up our two greatest culture war issues. One party embraced one so-called minority group. Another party embraced another. Immigrants on one side, African Americans on the other. And so our parties kind of diffused the culture war. It's not that we didn't really fight about them, but the parties didn't mainline those fights into our politics. I wonder the story, the, Let me just to finish okay, the point. Sure. I'm sorry to interrupt. The story of the last 50 years is the story, and we can talk about this more if you want, of one group after another coming into the Democratic Party. African Americans first, and that's a very interesting story. Uh, Asian Americans were last. They voted for Bob Dole uh, over Bill Clinton, just about the only group that did. But then by, uh, by the year 2000, they had come into the Democratic Party. So the first time in American history, one party is the party of all the so-called minorities, even if it adds up to a majority, and the other party became slowly but surely the party of white voters. If you look from 1976, sorry, 1972, all the way to 2020, the Democrats in presidential elections averaged 39% of the white vote. Uh, the Republicans were the party of white voters. The Democrats slowly but surely became the party of everyone else. And so that is the dividing line. And to me, the reason our politics have gotten so tribal, so angry, is that the two parties have fundamentally different constituencies that match up with the great culture war that runs through every day of American history. And lots and lots of differences between the parties, of course. But that fundamental difference, I think, is what makes things so angry, that the parties really speak to different, if I could call them this, different tribes. And it's the first time in American history that it's gone like that across the two parties, with basically people who identify themselves as white and as native all in one party, and people who identify themselves as African-American, as members of different minority groups, all in two-to-one 
in the other party, in the Democratic Party. And that's the fault line, I think, that makes our politics, the politics of venom. Lots of other things get added on top of that. But that's really what we have to get beyond, in my view. And there is a lot of um, contradictory thought uh, in uh, how uh, one party views uh, African Americans. Take, for instance, you were talking about the slave revolt in Haiti and the fact that uh, the slavers of the South didn't want those ships crewed by uh, African Americans to come because they might talk uh, their slaves into rebelling. But one of the views that the slavers had of African Americans is that unless they were directed, uh, they couldn't think on their own, they had no intelligence, and yet, and this is a footnote from your book, Jim, that when the British decided that they wanted to take over another area in the New World, uh, they invaded Haiti, but they had to turn with their tail between their legs because they lost 40,000 troops and had 100,000 casualties, which was more than they lost in the Revolutionary War. It's an amazing story, Bob. That was one which I just didn't know before I wrote this book. So the rebels in Haiti, they rebel. Very bloody war. The English think, wait, this island at the time is the single... possibly the most lucrative possession in the Caribbean. Now, lots of sugar, lots of rum. Let's take it over. It's, it's in chaos. So they sail in with this, as you say, this huge force. And the, uh, the slaves fight them off through four years of bloodshed and horror. Then the French, they see, as you say, you, you read the statistics, the French decide, well, the British lost. Let's win this island back. So they sent under Napoleon a big force. Uh, under Napoleon's brother-in-law, a general named Leclerc, and they get wiped out. In fact, during that battle, um, the um, the French decide, let's just kill everyone. We can have genocide, wipe them all out, and then we can reintroduce African slaves after we've won over the colony. And so genocide begot genocide, blood begot blood, and for years the French fought unsuccessfully against these men and women who were desperate not to go back to slavery. And here's the interesting punchline, Bob. When the French finally gave up, Leclerc himself died of, uh, of disease, as did so many of his troops. Napoleon just said, the heck with the New World. <laughs> he was planning to use, like the British were, he was planning to use this big, prosperous island as a jumping-off point. And he already had, remember, the whole western half of the continent. He had the whole Louisiana Purchase. Uh, so that was all in French hands. And that, he thought, would make a great... And so did George Washington, by the way, that that would make a very powerful staging ground to go from Haiti to the Louisiana and then invade the United States. Napoleon, remember, always wanted more territory. Right. But after he lost all those troops, he said, the heck with the New World. Let's, let's focus on just conquering all of Europe and Asia. Um, and so he decided he would just sell off his New World possessions. Thomas Jefferson got the Louisiana Purchase dropped in his lap. Unknown story. Because of the bravery and the sacrifice of the slave rebel, rebels of Haiti, they won over the French and, 
as a result, the French decided they were through with the New World, and they sold Louisiana uh, territories, and the United States got to double its territories thanks to the Haitian rebels. A little-known story. Hmm. Uh, And uh, that's why we have such a large country today and why it was so complicated to keep everything together. Uh, I want to just jump back to 1840 for a moment. Uh, The states had always jockeyed over voting rules, each trying to bend them to its advantage. Now, the Democrats enthusiastically, and the Whigs reluctantly, built brash electoral machines. The growing parties needed workers, and they recruited them with the promise of government jobs. The system that emerged, known as the spoils system, was crude, corrupt, and democratic. Could you explain that a bit? Oh, yeah, this is one of my favorite eras and favorite themes. So here we have a federal government. Uh, It's got lots of jobs, partially because the United States is spreading so rapidly. And one thing it takes very seriously is the post office. And so every village, every town has a postmaster, or, well, they're mostly men at the time. And there uh, are huge ports of entry where all the customs get paid. The United States finances itself mainly by customs. Now, the parties are growing very, very rapidly. And what they decide is they're going to take all the federal jobs and give it to the people who work to win uh, to win election. So if you take the 1840s elections, uh, the 1840s election, the uh, Whigs win the election. And so even though they had hated the system and criticized it when the Democrat, Democrats were in office, they began to give all the federal jobs to their party workers. What are we here for? If not the spoils, they cried at one, uh, at the, not the spoils of victory. They cried at one convention, and the name was born, the spoiled system. And so anybody who worked for a campaign would then descend on Washington and demand a job, a nice, well-paying job. Uh, It might be in the Customs House where people like Nathaniel Hawthorne, the author of The Scarlet Letter, why he got a job in in the Customs House in Boston. And um, he lost it again when, when his party got driven out of office. And in fact, if you ever go read the Scarlet Letter, the first 40 pages is a mockery of the, um, of the post office uh, that he, I'm sorry, of the, uh, 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 of the office that he used to work in, the customs house. And so the spoils became the great way that the American government ran itself each People descending on Washington. It was said that Garfield couldn't find a place to meet his cabinet because every uh, room in the White House that he would walk into, there'd be hundreds of people screaming and holding their letters of recommendation that they wanted jobs, jobs, jobs. It just took over the whole system. And here was the great thing for the parties. If you got a job, you were expected to pay 10% of your salary back to the party to help fund the next campaign. Whether you were effective at your job didn't matter. What mattered was how good were you at campaigning. The Union Army in the Civil War, people spoiled. The reason their generals were so bad was it was party connections that got them the jobs. And in fact, when Abraham 
Abraham Lincoln wanted to pass the 13th Amendment and needed some Democratic votes in um, right as the Civil War was winding down in 1865, what did he do? He went to all the Democrats who had been defeated in the election of 1864 and say, okay, what job do you want? And he jobbed them, as we used to say. They, he gave them jobs in the spoil system in exchange for their votes. The reason we were able to abolish slavery in 1865 was this spoil system. And it lasted right through the Civil War, really till the 1890s, when a group of reformers were horrified at just how incompetent government was, the progressive reformers, and they finally managed to get a civil service into place. Today, people often criticize the bureaucrats of the civil service, the deep state. Well, they were once all political appointments, and it was such chaos by 1900 in the army, in the post office, you name it, that reformers finally got a civil service into place. That started really with the election of 1840, uh, because there were huge numbers of, of party workers who had to be fed and, and put into the various parties. And by the way, 1840 was the first time also that women got involved. They got involved almost exclusively as Whigs. The Whigs and later the Republicans were very up on women's rights. They strongly supported votes for women. They supported women's rights. It was the Democrats, the party of immigrants, who opposed them. And women first got very active in party politics in the election of 1840. So, Jim, I, I want to spend the last few minutes on your five proposals. And I came across this part of your book that actually, I thought, uh, gives uh, a leg up to uh, solving one of those proposals that you had. And that is, if a, this is after the 14th Amendment, which defines citizenship. If a state abridged the voting rights of any male inhabitant, that state's basis of representation would be reduced in proportion to the male citizens who had been cut out. States would still define who votes, but repressing voters would cost them their voting power. Yeah, I was reading the 14th Amendment. I saw that. That's a forgotten letter in the Constitution. And I've never heard anybody uh, in the Constitution through the 14th Amendment. It's the um, deep in the uh, 14th Amendment. Um, and um, uh, it, this is Section 2 after... Uh, equal protection of the laws, the famous part of the 14th Amendment. I've always wondered, wouldn't it be interesting if we started pressing for that, if we re-resurrected that part of the 14th Amendment, saying, no, you can't suppress votes, and if you do suppress votes, we've got the mechanism in the Constitution to punish you for suppressing votes. I think we've actually got the legal authority to do that. And I think young Republicans, eager to win their party and, and speak to new constituencies, and many, many Democrats who think, but maybe not uh, as soundly as they believe, who think that wide voter turnout will advantage them, I think many people might want to give that a second look. And I have to add one more thing. I don't know if you're going to bring it up, but one other lesson from studying history Everything always changes. So any reform that you think, ah, not a chance, no way that's going to happen, well, you just wait a while because things 
I always illustrate this um, by pointing to a, a, a electoral map from just a generation ago that if you looked at back to the Dukakis versus George Herbert Walker Bush election, Dukakis knew for a fact that he was going to win West Virginia because all Democrats won West Virginia. Bush knew for a fact that he was going to win for California or Vermont. California had gone Republican eight of the nine previous presidential elections. Now look, West Virginia is one of the two or three most Republican states, two to one Republican. California, one of the most blue states. Vermont, even bluer. It all changes all the time. So when someone makes a proposal and you think, that'll never happen, well, you're just thinking about now. But things are always changing in American politics and history. So my message is don't be afraid to suggest crazy things, because crazy things that were proposed a generation ago that just seemed ludicrous now would be like, yeah, California, blue state, big deal, of course. Well, it wasn't always so, and your older listeners will smile and remember when it was really a red state with red governors and red presidential elections, except for very occasionally. Um, and uh, I don't know, if you, get, uh, if you get really successful, Bob, and get all the way to West Virginia, it would be the same message the other way around. Uh, but things keep changing, and I think that ought to give all reformers, whatever they're pushing for, a lot of heart. Uh, because in American politics, man, it's just we are a society that's always in an uproar, always in a flux. And, um, and things that sound preposterous today will maybe be not so preposterous just a few years from now. Well, Jim, uh, we're coming down near the end, and you've given us such good information, and I hesitated to interrupt you because we were getting so much good stuff from what you were saying. So I'm just going to read your five proposals. One was secure the vote. Require voting? Maybe. A national holiday? That sounds like a good idea. Number two, unrig the electoral machinery. Eliminate the electoral college? Maybe. Pass H.R. 1? Also maybe. And embrace, number three was embrace partisanship. And my question is how? So, uh, the, the task for Democrats was to confront inequality and Republicans winning over blacks, Asians, and Latinos. So I want to say thank you very much to James A. Marone, uh, author of Republic of Wrath. And I really have run out of time, I'm sorry to say, Jim, because this was really an engaging conversation. And I think that we did a good job in discussing most of your book, if not all. Bob, thanks so much for having me. And let me just uh, call out to you. There's not many reviewers who've read any book as carefully as you read <laughs> mine. So really, it was a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. And it was for me, too. Bye-bye.